Alas, Jan Slayer, a Viklin, Sakojakail, Erangedal Shesker and Milamaga sucked and feared in Folchushen. Vishay Creole like a squillin charm. Is Kamalashen is intercon, feared in Folchet, a dagger in winter stroil, Lomhain, Slam of Ankele, Savin, is eat sanatoy to ash the lum, Agasahas and Downerum, Shans of Ham Lowert, Lation Kuluter Shah. Distinguished guest, Vice Chancellor, may I join with you uh, first in acknowledging that we are meeting today on the traditional lands of the Bregal people, and may I join with you in paying my respect to their elders, both past and present. Jenim Shin Agasklakim, Leishin Mikultur, Iantak Arse, Eve Aka, Isquim Banakt, Arasanato Yemi, Iet Sanata Anfiloher, Is Amegan Santaki. May I thank you, Vice-Chancellor, for your kind introduction of me this evening. It is a great honor for me to be here to address you in a university whose foundation in 1949 represented, as you have emphasized, such an important egalitarian moment in the expansion of university education in Australia, and New South Wales in particular. And indeed, the ongoing success of this university is surely a tribute to the enduring wisdom of that decision. This university, as you have said, has contributed so much to the writing of the history of the Irish experience in Australia. From, and I agree, it is seminal scholarship, the scholarship of the late Professor Patrick O'Farrell, to the establishment of the Australian Island Fund Chair in Modern Irish Studies, and the John Hume Institute in Global Irish Studies. Through its partnership with its namesake, the John Hume Institute in University College Dublin, that institute is an expression, in surely, of the closeness of the relationship between Ireland and Australia, and it provides an example of the kind of scholarly cooperation across national borders that is to the benefit of all mankind. In the distinguished history of Irish studies, makes this university a very appropriate place for me, Maruk Dronaherin as President of Ireland, to make a reflection on the depth of the connection of Ireland and Australia. This is what I'm trying to do this afternoon, including in that exercise the heterogeneity, the complexity of the Irish contribution in the making and shaping of this country. And it gives an opportunity, too, to engage with the challenge of what might be the appropriate remembering and reconstruction of that history. I'm conscious that to mention a phrase such as the Irish contribution brings to mind a certain historiographical tradition. And this is a trope evident early in the decades before Federation, in particular, which Professor Robert Rees has termed contribution history that celebrates the accomplishment of political and economic success as the apotheosis of the Irish achievement in Australia. You have already referred to an aspect of that. Now, this tradition has had its moments. It played an important polemical role in its time and, and with various intent. James Francis Hogan's The Irish in Australia was published in 1887. And it emphasized the facility with which the Irish and Australia had adopted themselves to legislative affairs in the self-governing colonies, and thus offered a shrewd rebuke to those who wished to deny home rule in Ireland. It was a kind of secondary argument. And indeed, there had been a very significant contribution. And it does, of course, include John Henry Plunkett, includes William Hearn, and includes so many others. Cardinal Patrick Moran's History of the Catholic Church in Australasia, who was published in 1895 and recast the Irish convicts as martyrs for religious freedom, virtuous forebears, as it were, of a Catholic civilization being constructed between the Indian and Pacific Oceans. Piers Cleary's Australia's Debt to Irish Nation Builders was published a decade and a half after the bruising conscription referenda of 1916 and 17. And I don't have to tell anyone here in the room that Billy Hughes and Archbishop Mannix had different opinions. 
I think in the course of P.S. Cleary's Australia's Debt to Irish Nation Builders, he called up the names of no less than 23 Irish-Australian state premiers for the purpose of making the point, exemplifying, as it were, the patriotic bona fides of the Irish and to emphasise their contribution to Australia that could be relied on into the future. This historiography of the contribution which articulates the historical experience of a particular culture or ethnic group, however narrowly or widely defined, as a succession of individual contributions to a singular but shared series of national achievements, was aimed at integrating what had been perceived at times as what might be called a specifically Irish Catholic other into colonial Australian society. It isn't possible for me today, even if I desire, to simply recapitulate that approach. It always was, I feel, that historiography of the contribution insufficient as method, and in that insufficiency it was tendentious. It required the neglect of too much of that which has passed. For example, the nature of the arrival experience from the perspective of those arriving and the response to that arrival, from the that is, from the perspective of the first occupants of this landmass. Then, too, it does not deal with the operation of what is called the system, that immense apparatus of imperial crime and punishment. And it ignores, too, the differing nuanced forms and consequences of settler capitalism, a venture which, after all, displaced so many. It is thus a relatively recent historiography that attempts to deal with the collision of these projects of discovery, place of banishment, settlement, domination, and of above all, the subject of the treatment of the first occupants. For let us never forget, Australia was never for 70,000 years, except in the ideological hubris of imperialism, a terra nullius, an empty country, nobody's land. The problem of historiography then, as I have been describing it, is to me a moral one as well as one of adequacy of scholarship. And this should not surprise us, as any historiography, and particularly one dealing with such a connection as the one between Ireland and Australia, is likely to be influenced by the dominant popular historical narrative of the time. A narrative which was often in the times under consideration, narrowly national in its scope, certainly limited in its inclusivity, and increasingly being used to provide material for the tracks of polemicists rather than historians, whether professional or dedicated amateurs, and there are very many contributions from dedicated amateurs. We've moved on, and we're very fortunate that much new historical work has been carried out on the experience of the Irish in Australia, particularly, I suggest, the writing since the 1980s by Irish and Australian historians, many, of course, with Irish ancestry. Many of those writers, those new writers, have been working too from the Centres for Irish Studies established in the past 20 years. Indeed here at the University of New South Wales, at Murdoch University in Perth, and at the University of Melbourne. And aren't we all surely indebted to this recent generation of scholars who have given us such carefully researched and well-presented volumes as Thomas Keneally's The Great Shame, The Playmaker, Commonwealth of Thieves, Robert Hughes' The Fatal Shore, Stuart McIntyre's excellent concise history of Australia, which is a, a, a relatively recent edition, and a number of specialist studies, such as Mark Tadeshi's Murder at Mile Creek, and of course Claire Dunn's People Under the Skin. I have been rereading these, and also I want to express my thanks to the kind person who sent me a hundred poems you should know with contemporary poets from Australia, and indeed, they were so impressive. On that, I thought something very interesting occurred to me. 
was the particular kind of Australian humour which informs that writing in the contemporary period, the sideways glance at reality. But the scholarship to which I've just been referring, I suggest, provides a richer and much more inclusive basis on which to make a reflection on the Irish experience in Australia. As I address the challenge, then, of interpreting history as it affected the Irish who came to, to Australia, I have another impulse, and it is one that I regard as an advantage of being able to reflect on the experience of some of my own ancestors. My grandfather's brother, Patrick Higgins, born only a few years before the Great Famine on Gortamore, which would leave a million dead and two million fleeing Ireland between 1845 and 1852. Patrick Higgins and his sister Marianne arrived in Moreton Bay in 1862 aboard the Montmorency. There were 77 passengers, one person had died on the voyage, and three babies had been born. It was one of the first ships chartered by the Land and Immigration Commission of the Government of Queensland. They ultimately established themselves in Warwick, 160 kilometres southwest of Brisbane. Patrick was a ploughman, atypical, in that he had undertaken a year of study in the Royal Agricultural Society in Dublin. In Queensland, he became a ploughman, manager of a farm, and eventually a landholder. And both he and his sister Marianne, who was a laundress, would go on to find spouses and both made a living from the land. I've connected with Australia in every generation since then. My uncle is buried in Toowoomba, my aunt is buried in Warwick, and my nephew currently has a business here in Sydney. Only months before their arrival, the Aaron Gobro and Chatsworth had dropped anchor off Moreton Bay carrying with them the first Irish colonists recruited by the Queensland Immigration Society. That was a society established by Dr. James Quinn, Bishop of Brisbane, for the purpose of carrying and supporting immigrants directly from Ireland. Now, I do not know whether these ancestors of mine were aware of Father Patrick Dunn's promise of what he called a tropical Hibernian paradise or his boast that our people are to be the founders of a great nation. But I imagine that they and many others saw this land as a new world, free of the oppressive poverty and suffering of the old, in which they might perhaps build a new life. Their accounts of their experience was in terms of engaging with the frontier. And this, of course, immediately provokes questions. When I think of my ancestors' arrival, I cannot but think also of those who were there before them on this land. Here are, if you like, victims of the dispossessed coming to be part of dispossession. And they are coming to people who had a culture that scholars have pushed as old as 65,000 years. And the words of that great poet and champion of the rights of her people, and her description of the desolation and loss engendered by expanding European influence over what would become the colony of Queensland come to mind. Her words on what was an ancient but now broken symmetry with nature, symmetry with life, are deeply moving. The scrubs are gone, the hunting and the laughter. The eagle is gone, the emu and the kangaroo are gone from this place. The Bora ring is gone, the Karburi is gone, and we are going. What was the character then of the island my ancestors left, the source of these new arrivals that could be described? Those fleeing from conditions of famine, lucky to survive, there were survivors, too, of evictions which had started before the famine. Involuntary exiles, all anxious to escape, they'd been offered a new life, but they were nevertheless entering the lands of people who, as I have read these lines you could see, must have foreseen their own dispossession. That was the nature of the land to which they journeyed. It was not a terra nullius. And what was to be made of such an arrival then? What is to be made of it today in an ethical historiography? 
These are profound and complex and troubling questions. They are captured by Judith Wright's description of walking the beach at Lake Kulula and walking on clean sand among the prints of bird and animal. I am challenged by a driftwood spear thrust from the water and, like my grandfather, must quiet a heart accused of its own fear. Affecting some amnesia towards this period of history, avoiding contradictions upon which I must reflect is not an option. It would be insufficient for me to simply reiterate a historiography of the Irish contribution to Australia. Instead, in a university, after all, I wish to advance the case for what I like to call an ethic of remembrance. The construction and contribution of a strategy for an ethic of remembrance has been a project I've been attempting in my presidency since 2011, on the 11th of the 11th, 2011. I do so, I have been doing so, as a response partly to the challenge of the commemoration of the formative events that took place in Ireland between 1912 and 1922. These, of course, included foundational acts such as the Ulster Covenant, the establishment of the Irish Volunteers, the 1913 strike and lockout, the 1916 Easter Rising, the First World War, the suffrage movement, the Irish War of Independence, and our Civil War. Remembering, I like to, you to imagine a hyphen in the word because remembering philosophically is putting people back into action of a time. Commemorating these foundational acts of a hundred years ago in Ireland might perhaps be viewed as challenges that can be compared with similar challenges facing Australians reflecting on the first occupants of Australia 65,000 years ago, or the arrival of the first fleet in 1788, or the declaration of terra nullius, or the long conflict between Europeans and the indigenous peoples of this land, or the Eureka Rebellion, or the achievements of Federation, or the maritime and shearer strikes of the 1890s, or the first landing at Gallipoli on the 25th of April 1915 in that these are all important events in the national consciousness and collective memory of Australia, bearing in mind the rigours that are demanded by the very concept itself of collective memory. I haven't the time, but I have done it elsewhere, about how you constitute the concept of collective memory. The exercise of scrutinising what comprises collective memory is indeed a worthwhile one. It has the capacity to unleash two something that is very important in the contemporary period. Unleash a healing, such a healing as may come from the journey of remembering through understanding to what may in time make possible forgiving. The challenge of being open to revisiting anew formative events of the past that we had, as it were, put on a shelf in our mind, more accurately had been placed on a shelf in our mind, is one that could best be expressed as a challenge we all face in all cultures, and that includes, of course, both Ireland and Australia. The purpose of forgiving, for example, as Hannah Arendt sought, and if I may summarize, was to rob an event of the past of its capacity to, de to deprive one of the realistic possibilities of the present, and even more important, the imaginative possibilities of the future. In Irish, we would refer to them as nefedrakti. There is nothing truly to be gained from amnesia, though, I suggest, however comforting it may be, and everything to be lost for taking it as a strategy. For it is only by acknowledging, questioning, sometimes revising, but always remembering in an ever more inclusive way the events of our collective past that we can begin to build a collective future. And that is why, for example, in Ireland, during what we have termed the decade of centenaries, we sought, for example, to restore to our national memory those men and women from the south of Ireland 
250,000 in number, who served in British forces in the First World War, of whom 35,000 may never have come home. They shared the terrible experience of war in Europe, with the children of other countries, at Gallipoli in the Middle East, but the Irish returnees were remembered and treated quite differently when they returned to the south of Ireland than, for example, the Irishmen who fought in the Australia and New Zealand Army Corps when they returned to their new homes. We have sought to address this. In remembering them in our narrative, we seek not to minimise what remains as important, legitimate and crucial debates regarding the causes and consequences of what was, after all, a collision of competing empires that led to a world war, that lost a generation in war. But what we seek to recognise, rather, is the lives of those Irish soldiers lost and those, after all, whose potential and promise were extinguished on the battlefields of a war which had been declared. The same instinct of seeking a more comprehensive memory of our past has led us to focus on the central role of women in our own revolutionary generation of a century ago, a role that had been underemphasized in previous commemorations. And if there is a difference between, for example, the poetry of World War I, as it is quoted 50 years ago, and quoted just recently in the centenary, there is equally one, is that 50 years after 1916, the commemorations in Ireland were quite militaristic. Just recently in 2016, women have taken their place in the narrative, have been recognised. I think that, yes, of course, the most difficult commemorations for us still lie before us. For over the next six years, we enter the centenary of a crucible of Irish history, our Irish Revolution, our independence struggle, our civil war, and the foundation of the new independent state. The 1918 general election, in which the plurality of Irish people, newly enfranchised through the introduction of universal suffrage, following the culmination of a long struggle by women and working class people in Ireland, they voted for a nationalist movement committed to achieving a separate and independent Irish Republic, which was to be achieved by withdrawing from the British Parliament. <coughs> and it would lead, they suggested, if I may quote, the establishing of a constituent assembly comprising persons chosen by the Irish constituencies as the supreme national authority to speak and act in the name of the Irish people. At the inaugural meeting of that Constituent Assembly, the first Doyle Erin, the newly elected representatives of the people ratified the establishment of the Irish Republic, proclaimed in Dublin on Easter Monday, 1916. They did this through a declaration of independence and approved a democratic program which outlined economic and social principles, including a declaration of the right of every citizen to add an adequate share of the produce of the nation's labour. It has its romantic moments, appealing to the world they issued the press releases from that meeting in Irish, English and French. The refusal of the British government to recognise the very existence of the first Doyle Aaron, which was after all the outcome of national consultation, led inexorably to a war of independence. The war was brought formally to a close by the Anglo-Irish Treaty, and one of the Irish negotiators was George Gavin Duffy, son of Charles Gavin Duffy, a former Premier of the State of Victoria. Many of those elected to the Second Doll refused to abide by the terms of a treaty they claimed was signed under duress. They claimed that they were being asked to accept the status of Ireland as a dominion of the British Empire, which maintained the King as head of state of the new 26-county jurisdiction. The election, which took place in 1922, was fought on the subject of the treaty, and the pro-treaty participants in the election prevailed, securing the majority of votes. Divisions that would be destructive for generations then emerged. These divisions led to a civil war 
more terrible and devastating in its consequences than the War of Independence in many respects. As former comrades and friends found themselves on opposite sides, divided by their ideals, ambitions, and in some cases by their differing evaluations of the feasibility of a continuing struggle against the British Empire. We have had and must and will have to acknowledge the brutality of that struggle, the viciousness that was unleashed, and the brutal tactics that were employed on both sides. 53,000 men and women, 53,000 men, many of whom had experienced the War of Independence, and some, the First World War, joined the National Army of the Free State, which supported the treaty. My uncle was one of them. 13,000 of those who opposed the treaty were interned by the Free State. They included my father. Thus, families and communities were cleaved apart in a bitter war that was to cast a shadow for generations and hamper our efforts to meet the Republican ideals that had been expressed in 1916. And it is important, too, to note that in the years leading up to independence, the nationalist movement represented quite a plurality of opinion, for many nationalists voted for the Irish Parliamentary Party, and the policy of home rule for Ireland within the Union. Those from the Unionist tradition, predominantly but not wholly located within the northeast of Ireland, voted for the Irish Unionist Party, which sought to maintain the island of Ireland within a unitary state of Britain and Ireland. For many southern Unionists, the partition of Ireland was a bitter disappointment and betrayal. The democratic programme of that first thaw to which I have referred whose egalitarian promise represented the emancipatory tradition of Irish labour. And Irish labour sought to end the Civil War, for example. But that programme was viewed by many conservative nationalists with apprehension. Tom Johnson, the drafter of the programme, had sought to follow in the tradition of Wolfe Tone and Michael Davitt, who had sought independence not simply that would mean replacing flags or substituting personnel, important as that may be, but which sought to ensure a more equal and more just distribution of wealth, power and opportunity in Ireland. These are some of the grave and difficult matters which we in Ireland will be confronting in the coming years. They concern not only personal memories of consequences of the war independence and the civil war, but also profound questions regarding the economic and social trajectory of the new Irish state. Conscious of my role as President of Ireland during a time of intense public remembering, I have argued that the activity should be placed in an ethical framework, and in doing so, where I have spoken so far, I have drawn on the work of the French philosopher of the late Paul Ricoeur, of Richard Carney and Hannah Arendt, because I believe their work has a relevance for us, but also for Australian historiographers, for both of us. And, and there are some principles, if I might adduce, to such an approach. First, an imperative to include and recognise those voices in the past marginalised or disenfranchised, whether through the distorted lens of that his historiography, which E.P. Thompson termed the enormous condescension of posterity, or by the simple exclusion of certain groups as subjects of history on the grounds of class, race or gender, or indeed as indigenous people with an ancient culture. I think we have succeeded somewhat, for example, in Ireland in fulfilling this principle to some degree in the case of more fully recognising and remembering the vital role of women in the revolutionary mo moment that culminated in an independent Irish state. A second principle, against historical amnesia, Paul Ricoeur advocated a disposition of what he called narrative hospitality which involves being open to the perspective, stories, memories, and pains of the stranger, the other, the enemy of yesterday, however dissonant they may be. The process of ethical remembering invites us all to critically evaluate our often competing foundational myths and beliefs, which define and shape 
and have shaped our national consciousness and our image of the nation, and to draw our attention from the national to the global with all its complexity, from high politics too to the social and the economic. When I was at the University of Melbourne a week ago, I suggested that serious intellectual work must address questions of morality and of ethics. In this light, I suggested that our publics would gain if economics were to be grounded again in both an ethical and cultural framework, ethical to take account of moral questions that should not be avoided, and cultural to take account of difference and diversity and of the interrelationship of scholarships. Issuing amnesia then, and with some trepidation as to meeting the standards of ethical remembering and having announced two principles, I attempt to reflect on the Irish experience of migration, including migration to Australia, forced, impelled and voluntary in the century following the arrival of the first fleet. The story of those who were displaced, dislocated, relocated, sometimes directly by the state, sometimes due to the development of a precocious industrial capitalism, and sometimes of their own volition, that is perhaps most salient to a discussion of the Irish arrivals in Australia in the late 18th and through the 19th centuries. The first European permanent arrival on this land occurred, we again say, 65,000 years after humans, it is calculated, first occupied Australia. And this arrival, this first European permanent arrival, was largely the consequence of a policy of transportation, whose origins arose in the late 16th century England, at times of acute social crisis, harvest failures, widespread starvation, when the English countryside was being slowly transformed by the enclosure of common land as the public purpose yielded to private power. Thomas More vividly described in his Utopia that sheep, as he put it, would eat up and swallow down the very men themselves as tillage gave way to pasture, leading in some places to rural depopulation. And so-called vagabonds and sturdy beggars, dislodged by this development, roamed the land, frightening a governing class always fearful of social unrest. And in response, the English Parliament declared in its legislation that such, I quote, rogues should be banished from out of this realm and shall be conveyed to such parts beyond the seas as shall be assigned by the Privy Council. Initially confined to England in the early 17th century, the use of convict transportation was extended to Ireland by the English Commonwealth during the Cromwellian invasions when prisoners of war, priests, vagrants, were sent to labor in Virginia and the Caribbean. This represented a consequence, a tool of conquest, and an expression of a brutal political economy of primitive accumulation. The most turbulent opponents of Cromwellian rule were removed, and upon arrival were disposed of as unfree laborers to serve sentences of seven or 14 years in the plantations of the New World. The transportation system represented a quite different logic in 18th century England, reflecting its origins as a mechanism for social control, but for some, an instrument for reform, and even an alternative to the death penalty. In England, it was driven not by the imperatives of conquest, but by the remorseless expansion of the market economy a process given a new life and new impetus by the revolution of 1688 and the transformation of the relationship between the people and the land, the land in which they lived and worked, as complex customary rights to the commons established over many centuries were extinguished by parliamentary fiat. To protect the newly acquired rights to this new private property, the statute book, for this was a parliamentary process, was marked by great expansion of criminal offences to which capital punishment applied. The great legal scholar Blackstone complained in the 1760s that there were 160 of such in force, 
as parliamentarians sought to maintain their faith in the deterrent effect of the hangman, even as perceptions of criminality continued to rise. Recourse to a system of transportation was not a peculiarly English or British phenomenon. It was rather more common expression of the fears and ambitions of empire, a way that empire sought to dispose to, of disciplining and reforming troublesome, surplus peoples. It was seen as a strategy for dealing with overcrowded cities filled with vagrants, considered to be subversive, a danger to good order. In addition to its early period, transportation was used as a means of opening up what are described as new frontiers to cultivation and exploitation. Dutch, Spanish, and Portuguese convicts were used as indentured agents of, of imperial expansion, circulating the Indian and Pacific Oceans to the Americas, Cuba, Philippines, Java, the Cape of Good Hope, Goa, Sao Tome, Brazil, Mozambique, Angola, Uncoguan, Russian convicts were shipped to Siberia and Sakhalin Island, and Qing China used convict labor to open up its western frontier after conquest. We must then situate the system of convict transportation within that broader context and recognize that there is no monopoly in memory on suffering or victimhood. The Transportation Acts of the 18th century British Parliament were faithfully followed by the Irish Parliament, but adapted for Irish circumstances, so that by 1735, the judges and magistrates of Dublin were authorised to order transportation as a punishment for vagrancy, a measure which was used far more frequently than in England. More than 13,000 Irish men and women were transported to North America in this way in the 50 years before the American Revolution of 1776. Now we must recall that Ireland in the 1780s and 1790s was in a state of intellectual, economic and social ferment. I think too it was a time of great European intellectual energy as well. A patriot party in the Irish Parliament, inspired by the American Revolution and reinforced by an armed militia, the Irish Volunteers, agitated for an expansion of the suffrage, an enlargement of the powers of the Irish Parliament, and though there was some disagreement, the repeal of the penal laws, which, would, which locked Catholics and dissenters, very important dissenters as well as Catholics, out of politics and the professions. And indeed, many of the professional classes would come to Australia, among other places, because they had every place closed to them, having been called to the bar or whatever. Inspired by Thomas Paine's The Rights of Man, and disillusioned by the failure of the Patriot Party, the Society of the United Irishmen was founded to create an independent Ireland, based on, and they hoped ultimately, with the assistance of the French example. An insult of the time in the newspapers is to say that they were influenced by the French ideas. Meanwhile, in rural areas, secret oath-bound societies, such as the White Boys, protested the payment of the tithe to the established Anglican Church and sought often violently to defend the rights of tenant farmers. It was in these years that the term Protestant ascendancy came into common use to describe the precarious social, political, and economic dominance of a landed Anglican establishment whose greatest threat came as they saw it, not from any sectarian conflict or the structural contradictions of the society they occupied, but from the ideas of the French Revolution. And indeed, James Fenton Lawler would thunder against these 8,000 he saw who were excluding people from life's prospects itself. And in such an environment, the British appointed executive in Dublin was eager to recommence transportation. It was particularly needed as they saw it then, as nothing like the hulks, those aging, decrepit warships, which held prisoners previously condemned to transportation and were moored off the coast of England, nothing like that could be or were likely to be procured in Ireland, and this placed increasing pressure on already overcrowded prisons. 
Despite this readiness and several abortive attempts to transport Irish convicts to Newfoundland, the Caribbean, North America, no vessels from Ireland joined the first fleet. The first convict sentenced to transportation from Ireland departed Cork City on the 21st of April 1791 aboard the Queen, an overcrowded American-built three-mast square-sailed West Indiaman, and small, it was the smallest vessel to participate in the Third Fleet. The contractors were a slaving firm, Camden, Calvert and King, to whom the Irish administration agreed to pay £17 for every convict on board. That firm had been responsible, incidentally, for the infamous Second Fleet, which lost over a quarter of its passengers to disease and insufficient victualling, made all the worse by the use of slave shackles to restrain the prisoners on voyage. On the Queen, the 133 male and 22 female convicts, four of whom travelled with young children aboard the Queen, they were still treated cruelly. The second mate, whose duties included the dispensing of the convict rations, reportedly used short weights to serve out 60 pounds of beef in each sitting instead of the 132 pounds agreed as parts of terms of the contract. The convicts who arrived in the Queen were the first of 36,000 Irish people sentenced to transport to be sent to New South Wales, Queensland, Tasmania and Western Australia between 1791 and 1868. I calculate the Irish contribution to convict transportation to be about one-eighth. The transportation of non-political Irish convicts followed the general pattern outlined by Robert Hughes, that is, there's a period of primitive transportation from 1787 to 1810. The second period was from the terminus of the Napoleonic War and included the 15 years after its conclusion, as rapid demographic and economic transformations and an expansion of capacity of the state drove an increase in transportations. The third phase was from 1831 to 1840, the height of the system, and the final phase from 1840 when the introduction of the penitential system and the new poor law in England in the previous decade provided a, a carceral or prison solution to social problems hitherto dealt with by transportation. If you like, the utilitarian panopticon was winning at home. A minority of those transported were political prisoners, and this consisted of versions of the 1798 rebellion and the risings of 1803, 1848, 1867, all of whom were exiled from Ireland. The arrival of 400 United Irishmen and 300 members of their allies, the Defenders, including some experienced fighters, caused considerable alarm to the colonial authorities here in Sydney, who pleaded with London not to send any more of the Irish Republicans, who keep us in a constant state of suspicion these fears were augmented by the presence of some of the leadership of the United Irishmen, including General Joseph Holt and later one of his most able lieutenants, Michael Dwyer, whose grave now lies in Waverley Cemetery. These fears were given substance and form in the Castle Hill Rebellion as Irish political prisoners led by Philip Cunningham, fired up by news of Robert Emmett's rebellion of 1803, uttered the familiar cry of death or liberty and it is said, the much more unfamiliar, and a ship to take us home, and planted the tree of liberty at Government House. Following the death of Cunningham, the remaining ringleaders were court-martialed and hung in chains at Parramatta, Castle Hill and Sydney. Joseph Holt, despite his protestations that he was not involved, was sent to Norfolk Island, where he chronicled an experience that, in his words, exceeds in cruelty anything that can be credited. Dr. Anne-Marie Whitaker has traced the fates of many of the other United Irishmen and found that some prospered under the rules of, of Governor Macquarie, which is unsurprising. The leadership of the United Irishmen, after all, tended to reflect the same social composition as did their French revolutionary comrades, skilled tradesmen, professionals, merchants, and schooled in radical democratic politics 
a number became leaders of the emancipist faction. And the eldest son of Richard Dry, a prominent anti-transportation advocate, became the first Australian-born Premier of Tasmania. Integration into the new colonial society did not dissolve bonds of solidarity of an extrange kind between political prisoners. For example, James Meehan, the Deputy Surveyor General of New South Wales, and most influential 1798 man during Macquarie's term as Governor, befriended Edward Ryan, who was transported to Australia in 1816 for his participation in the White Boys, a secret agrarian society dedicated to defending tenant rights. Ryan was emancipated in 1830, established a pastoral empire at Burroa, 300 miles west of here. Thomas Keneally, in his magnificent book, The Great Shame, has recounted that sometimes tragic stories of the gentlemen revolutionaries and intellectuals of the Young Islander movement of 1848, William Smith O'Brien, John Mitchell, Thomas Francis Maha, Patrick O'Donoghue, Terence Bellew McManus, Kevin Isler O'Doherty, and John Martin. But I think there's something not to be ignored. Despite their romantic and generous vision of the Irish nation, profound ethical differences later emerged between them. For after all, after escape to America, John Mitchell supported the slave-owning Confederate States, while Maha served as the general of the Irish Brigade in the Union Army. The forces which influenced the free migration then of a third of a million Irish people to Australia, like my ancestor, they were more complex, for it was now the rhythms of the new global capitalist economy of the long 19th century which structured their experience. Often when I look back at all these studies on migration, I see great value in a distinction Emile Durkheim had in his classic work on suicide. External factors explain fluctuations in the race, but local factors and personal factors explain the incidence, the decision in any case. But the Irish economy, after the famine, was a small, poor agricultural one, and as such extremely open to world markets. Fluctuations in agricultural prices and poor harvests had devastating effects, and against a general background of a long transition from arable tillage to pastoral farming, enforced at times through evictions which had started before the famine, leaving some with no option but to emigrate. One has to ask the question, how free or voluntary was such a choice? The historian David Fitzpatrick reminds us, Irish immigration to Australia then in this period, this third of a million, was influenced more by the availability of assisted migration. And that is the case of the Queensland one I have referred to. The fortunes of the Australian economy and phenomena of chain migration these, I think, were really Fitzpatrick's view. I think that they had a greater influence than anything else. They were surely responsible as to the decision to immigrate, maybe rather than the destination. I think, yes, the 1862, as the Montmorency left, it was a period of poor harvest in Ireland, and at a time when the American Civil War was raging. So in North America was cut off. At that particular time, after the 1862 Act, you could buy land at a pound an acre, and then at the same time, land was threepence an acre in Nova Scotia. The number of Irish, why? Because, of course, now the sale of Crown lands was being used to fund assisted migration. The number of Irish born living in Australia peaked in 1891 at 228,000. Since then, numbers have reduced in overall terms, in proportional terms, as the proportion of Irish-born residents relative to the overall population. One can discern a combination of push and pull factors affecting the rates, as I have said, with the relative health of both economies, the ease of entry to alternative migration destinations, as I have instanced, having a clear influence on the numbers, the rate of immigration of the Irish choosing to come to Australia. I'm coming to the end, and then may I say, when one thinks of a diaspora, a word we use a lot in Ireland now, 
it is inevitable that one engages with the circumstances of what is a scattering, the structure of a departure, the strangeness of arrival. For the migrant, it involves a multitude of sensations that are called forth. The challenge of holding on to what one had been formed in one's mind and one's life, and the mustering up of a new courage. Then too, what may be near overwhelming is the challenge and the magnitude of the risks not anticipated, something faced by all our migrants today, the urgency that is attached to retaining, recovering the fabric of friendships that are so important as to sustenance for the future. And if there is a suggestion that emerges from such an experience, where if we have in fact put women into history, we have to put migrants' accounts into the social sciences, it is one that is repeated again and again in the conditions of migration. It is built around how do you construct, what construction is to be put on the first crucial encounters between those arriving and those who are receiving strangers. These early assumptions are crucial, built as they are on preconceived ideas. Is the other a curiosity? How do they look at Cook? Is the other a threat? Is the other a resource? Is the other superior? How one interprets the behavior that is offered by way of answer to such questions is, I suggest, an inherently moral choice. And then, as to an ethical approach to commemoration, as to making the act of remembering ethical, be it in Ireland or Australia, if we are to learn for the future, surely it seems that what is required is a necessary radical hospitality of the other, which must be paralleled in the new circumstances by hospitality of discourse that is radical in its inclusiveness, a hospitality of narratives, courageous in restoring that which has been elided, courageous in its offering of respect for complexity, above all courageous in defending the right to new futures impelled by the pursuit of moral worth, validated by good scholarly work, and never dismissed by obsession with the tools of the inadequate present or trammeled by a closed, unhelpful historiography. Re-engaging with the past in such a fashion releases us from the trap of being moulded by past errors, their justification, or our fear of revisiting circumstances. Revisiting our circumstances with an ethical regard for the importance of placing ourselves in the shoes of the other enables us to be free to interpret our present circumstances and even more important, imagine alternative emancipatory futures that reach beyond ourselves and our generation, beyond any narrow individualism and that might offer hope to future generations of a symmetry recovered and a planet characterized by the pursuit of peace rather than the preparation of that aggression of thought that is always the preliminary of war. As Václav Havel said so long ago and so well, words matter. And in our present circumstances, when anger is the temper of our times, we need to use our words for healing rather than wounding. Doing so with ethical, empathetic intent will, I believe, be something that can enormously help our understanding of both our possibilities and our dangers. May I thank you all for your attention. Thank you.